We're going to go to Scripture. We're ready to read the Bible. Um, if you don't have your physical Bible or digital Bible, we've got the Bible in the sky. Josiah, you can go to that. Um, woo, that's small, isn't it? So I'm going to read it for you. Um, this is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 6 and end in verse 18. This is Paul speaking. He says, For God, who said, Let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts, so we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but I get up again. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death. But this has resulted in eternal life for you, but we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith The psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying on the outside, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small, and they won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory. They produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these moments And Holy Spirit, I I invite you in a greater measure to come and dwell, come and rest on your people. And we trust you as the one who leads us into all truth. And right now we ask for the full manifestation of your goodness, of your presence. And God, would you take whatever I say and interpret it and translate it into each person's known language. God, I thank you right now for lighting a fire and fanning into flame each thing you've deposited and begun in each of us. And your word says that he who started a good work is faithful to complete it. So we thank you for being a part of that today. We give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise in Jesus' name. And and God, we, we ask for an outpouring of your spirit, not just here on Sunday, but in every church that's meeting across the central coast. Would you join your faith with mine as we pray for other churches? God, we thank you from San Maria, Napomo, Royal Grande, Grover Beach, Oceano, into San Luis Obispo. Would you pour out your spirit on the churches today? God, would you bless the pastors? Would you bless the leaders? Would you bless, bless the teams? We thank you for salvation. We thank you for abundance. We thank you for finance and an outpouring of your spirit in every church, no matter of belief, demographic, denomination, whatever it is, God, wherever people are gathering in your name, We ask you, and we command a blessing on it today in Jesus' name. God, help us to celebrate each other. Help us to hunger after unity and outpouring on the Central Coast. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, obviously don't care about that. Um, <laughs> um, I, I had this, um, <laughs> the bantering in the front is fantastic. Um, I had this vision two weekends ago, Lucas Connell was in town and we were having coffee and uh, he, he told me this personal testimony that he had gotten ministry recently because he was talking to a friend and he just said, man, I, I, I just feel like my eyes are open to how much noise I've been living with in my head. And, and he related it to like, it was almost like this demonic oppression that he had been living with. He was a, a pastor, a leader, um, now he's you know, a full-time evangelist, traveling, preaching all the time, leading people in freedom. And then he had this kind of realization, this aha that, man, I'm living with a lot of noise that doesn't seem like often it's the noise of heaven. There's a lot of shame and guilt and just worry, and there's so much noise. And as he was saying that, I thought, man, I think I have that same guy living on the inside. That same little demon is harassing me, man. Would you help me? Um, and so he, he prayed for me. And uh, as he was praying for me, I, I had this vision, not an open vision, just kind of in my mind's eye, in my spirit. And... Um, it was a bird's eye view of myself on a round platform. It was a round stage, and I, it was just me and, a, and an acoustic guitar, and um, I, I was singing, uh, which is never that great of a thing. And, uh, but I, I, I noticed that there was all these bleachers full of people, like stadiums surrounding me, and there were different sections. And I, I saw myself turning and, and singing to a certain section, and then I turn and sing to this section, and then I turn and sing, and there, there was about six sections. And as the vision went on, I, I saw banners over each section. And uh, over these sections of people, over one section was shame. Over the next section was unforgiveness. Over the next section was approval. Over the next section was the past. And I don't remember the rest of them, but I had been entertaining these people, these thoughts, these, uh, they were hungry for my attention the crowds were loud and they were cheering me on as I entertained them and so I was entertaining my shame and I was entertaining my uh, the the need for approval from other people and I was entertaining unforgiveness they were things that I was actually sowing into in my life and it was really loud and it was really noisy and it was really confusing and then for what I knew in my vision to be north or the front. It was a round stage, but I had this idea that there was a front. And at the front was Jesus. I didn't see his face. I just knew it was him from knowing him. And the, the, the presence that he gives me is, it, it, I just knew it was Jesus. And there was no banner over his head. There was no crowd involved. It was just Jesus. And, and I began, and I locked eyes on this being, and I began to entertain his presence. And as I entertained his presence, the noise of the crowds grew strangely dim. And it was a freedom moment for me because I thought, man, all this chatter, all this noise, all the pressures of life, what I need to do and what God is helping me to do is entertain his presence and the noise of everything else grows strangely dim. And I don't say that as an exclusive testimony to myself. I think some people in this room can maybe relate. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Dave. Come on. That there, there's things that are hungry for our attention. And I, I don't mean to, f hopefully no one gets flattered by this, but it's as if paparazzi are following us around day in and day out. Don't get too proud of yourself here. 
But the clicking of the camera and the flashes and the questions and the second you walk out your door, the second you go to open scripture, or the second you try to have this intimacy with God, it's like these cameras and clicks and voices and they are hungry for your attention. Look over here. Look over here. Do you have a moment for a question? It's like paparazzi. I remember one time uh, Josh and I took our friend Roy to the airport in, in, at LAX. Roy was a missionary to Belize and he was home visiting, and someone in our church was generous enough to bless him with a first-class ticket back to Belize, which was a big deal. You know, Roy is living on a missionary income, and there was something so honoring about sending a missionary first class, um, which is a beautiful story in itself. And so Josh and I take Roy to the airport, and if you've ever flown first class, um, there is a separate kiosk, a separate check-in area uh, that has a red carpet. You know, the sea of peasants over there in the long lines. <laughs> There, there's a red carpet, and there we look so out of place, and <laughs> Roy had like a cargo container, uh, a literally plastic cargo container that he was taking with him, and it was, just, it was fu- a funny sight, and so we're waiting to check Roy in, and we started to notice um, some musicians filing in behind us in the first class line, and we knew they were musicians because they had, you know, road cases and guitars, and you could just tell that they had some gear with them. And uh, we thought, oh, you know, who could it be flying first class? And, um, and uh, we didn't recognize anybody, but then we noticed by the doors that paparazzi started to gather um, in the airport. And so, you know, they filled the doorways, and there was kind of this buzz that started to happen in the terminal. And uh, Roy was gone, and our job was done, but curiosity got the best of us. And uh, Josh and I joined the crowd, and, and um, we're just waiting. Who could it be? You know, who did the paparazzi come out for today? Uh, heading to Belize of all places and um, and so we wait and we wait and we keep waiting I'm like man I would just love to get out of here but my curiosity is killing me and uh, then Josh decides man, I can't hold it any longer I gotta go to the bathroom I said no you're cool it, it, sh- it should be fine and so he goes to the bathroom of course the second he goes to the bathroom the celebrity walks in who didn't turn out to be that much of a celebrity anyways it was Damian Marley which um, I, I kind of appreciated. I listened to his album over and over and over, working in a surf shop for years, you know. And I knew every song by heart. And uh, so it was kind of cool, but it was really anticlimactic, to be honest. And Josh wasn't there. We couldn't share the moment. And I had to explain to him what happened. And, and, uh, but the fascination that people have to give attention to individuals is, is, is crazy to me. Like the buzz in the room and and because there was cameras and there was attention, people were hungry to give it to someone else, to give attention to and to get attention. And I watched a documentary this, this past week, which I don't recommend watching um, if you're a Christian, still working on it. And, um, but it was very engaging. I love documentaries. It's my favorite genre of movie or any sort of entertainment is documentaries. And uh, it, it was redefining the American dream. They said that in days gone by, the American dream, which most of us would still know, is to you know, have a house and some sort of security, a family, white picket fence, a car, um, you know, a, a stable job to have wealth. And that's the American dream. If you have that, you are living the American dream. But their argument and their case is that the American dream has changed. And so now the dream is to make sure other people perceive you to be living the American dream. <laughs> it's not actually about having the American dream. It's to make sure everybody else thinks I have the American dream. And if I do have it, I need to make sure it's louder than everybody else's dream. 
like my best life is way bester than the other person's best life. <laughs> That's the American dream. It's, it's a type of celebrityism. It's this acknowledgement. And that's sad. The saddest thing is the buy-in of society and culture to give the attention to those individuals they're so hungry for. We do it day in and day. We give them our attention. We give them our time. And so the, towards the end of the documentary, they sit down and interview real raw and honestly with these three people who had somewhat attained this. They had built empires for themselves, multimillionaires living the life that we all think is so glamorous and sexy and that's the American dream. And the first guy, um, he makes a living by partying. So you can imagine an entire generation seeing this guy as God. If I can make millions of dollars partying, my life would be fulfilled. And it's so sad because it gets to the end of this documentary and the guy says, I can't go to bed without getting blackout drunk because I know there's no substance behind the persona that I've created. He has to be blacked out drunk or else he just can't live with himself. The other girl, she made so much money and had, had made this living of just being a figure. People want to see her and she shows up to events and it's all about her appearances and she had created such a beast that she actually can't face humanity anymore. It's too much for her to have that sort of attention. So she's rich enough that she got a team of these engineers together so they could create a virtual world for her so she never has to leave her house. She puts on her virtual reality goggles and there is her life. <laughs> what a dream. <laughs> what a dream. Yeah, it's more like a prison. And so yes, they're, they're guilty of buying into this, but we're kind of all guilty of entertaining it a bit, aren't we? Kind of giving into it. And so if that's kind of the state of culture, the state of society, this, this need for attention, God, who being the famous one, I just wonder if sometimes we can categorize him in, in that same place of just being a, a being that is hungry for attention, who's just after attention. He's just, just after th for the buy-in. He's just after some followers. And there's this comedian um, who's actually not very funny, and uh, he said, why would you serve a God where he creates people just to worship himself? <laughs> He's an atheist himself, and you know, he, he's this real bash on Christianity. Why would you serve a God who just made you to worship him? Like That doesn't make any sense. He's just another figure in society that's hungry for your attention because he's insecure and he needs it. And I hope we don't categorize him in that same place. And so this morning, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about worship. Because worship is what we give our attention to. But I want to try and define it a little bit further. And uh, I, I hope we don't worship just because we think God needs it. God doesn't necessarily need it. And I'll, I'll expound on that. But if we go back to Scripture, we don't have a slide for this part, Josiah. But back to 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 6. It says this, For God who said, Let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts, so we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And glory is hard to describe. <laughs> it's like describing beauty, right? Like I, I can clearly define my friends in the front row. I could, you probably wouldn't want me to. But, or like a basketball or this water bottle. Like there, there's substance to it and, and you can define it and the shape of it and the color and the attributes of it. But glory is kind of a hard concept to get our minds around or beauty, things like that. And so go with me on the journey. I'm going to try I'm going to try, but it can be really hard to pinpoint 
what this glory is, but I hope to figure out the weight of his glory. And then he goes on to verse 7, come the illustration. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like this fragile clay jar containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. See, dust, dust and clay and, and, and pottery, I guess, is, is related to humanity throughout Scripture. In Genesis, we see that God created man from the dust of the ground. In Jeremiah, he talks about how God is the potter and I am the clay. Job chapter 10, he says this, that remember that you made me from dust, will you turn me back to dust so soon? And so we, we kind of are summarized in this dust and clay sort of um, form, uh, which isn't that flattering, but hopefully we can go on a journey to figure out how powerful it really is. And so uh, to take this illustration that Paul used to try and explain worship to a church who was under persecution and under great trial in Corinth, he, he uses this illustration to teach them worship. So we're going to go on the journey with him today. Is that cool? See, Paul starts about talking what's, what's on the outside of the jar, what, what's on the outside of this clay pot. And he says in going down to Scripture uh, 8, verse 8, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we get up again. <laughs> That's not in Scripture, it's a song. He says we get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. See, in the, in the context of glory, Paul doesn't paint a very glorious picture, <laughs> does he? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is it. Glory! It's like, he doesn't, he doesn't like, give a sunrise scene. <laughs> right? Like, you all have seen a sunrise, and you have no option most of the time but to worship. Just beautiful, and the mystery and, and the marvel of it invokes a worship on the depth of who we are. Or a newborn baby. It's like this crazy, like, how you can't get your head around it. All I can do is worship when I see a newborn baby. Or, like, in, I just remember junior high, high school, um, the, the final bell that marked the beginning of summer, right? And so like you hear the final bell and, and you are like in full abandoned, surrendered worship running through the hallways. Thank you, God, that you delivered me once again. You're so faithful to lead the captives out of Egypt. You did it then, you did it again. It's like this full surrender and abandon and worship. Those are glory moments for me personally. <laughs> but... uh Paul, Paul starts this illustration with pressure. Because here's the deal, it's a given that we will worship when life is working. That's <laughs> why you see on the, the Grammys or the Super Bowl, you know, when someone wins, a, a lot of people stand in front of the crowd and they say, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. I, I love that God receives that type of glory. But it's kind of a given that we will worship when life is working. But... It's a whole different scenario to worship when life isn't working. <laughs> Would you agree? Has any, anybody had to face that where you have to worship when life isn't working? And you ask the big question, why worship? <laughs> why worship? Or you have to pray a prayer, no, just with this deep sense 
down in the depths of who you are that it's falling on deaf ears? Can anyone just be honest and say, prayed a lot of prayers that just seem, yeah. It's really easy to worship when life is working, but what about when it isn't working? See, the enemy would love to corner us into this long season of life where we are in question with why to worship. To question at the very core of why we worship. He'd love to trap us there. And the main way that he traps us there is through our feelings. Ha. By just feeling a certain way, I don't really feel like worshiping today. I, I, don't, I don't feel like opening my Bible. I don't feel like showing up. I don't feel like getting, getting up early. I just don't feel like it. There's this trend in culture, and it's actually become like a core belief and core value for a lot of people to follow your heart. And um, you've probably heard me talk about this before. It's the worst advice to ever give a young person. Statistics show that the emotion of a young person responds 250 times faster than their logic. And so you empower a whole generation to follow their heart. (laughs) Oh boy. Maybe we're seeing the fruit of it now. I have serious hope in, in my generation. But don't follow your heart. Because feelings have a way of clouding judgment. But here's the thing about this feelings issue that God challenged me on. Is that my feelings um, can sometimes be very useful. Because in Hebrews chapter 13 it says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if you contrast the consistency of this same yesterday, today, and forever... And the inconsistency of my ups and downs and my feelings, my highs and lows. The beauty of that is you can redeem your feelings by acknowledging that, man, I can be a wreck, but God is not. That in the midst of my feelings, my highs and lows actually point to the consistency of Jesus himself. And so I I absorb and I embrace the feelings that life may throw my way, but I don't become victim to them. I use them as a way to serve Jesus and His consistency. And so we can worship through our feelings. The next thing, um, what about worshiping through failure? We talked about feelings, now failure. Paul says that we're perplexed. And Paul would have been familiar with failure. Um, He surrounded himself with some people who failed him. John Mark, he, he abandoned the mission, the call, and then there was entire churches who didn't follow through in supplying Paul's need throughout his journey. And then we read about his shipwrecks and we read about some other uh, turn of events that would introduce Paul to the idea of failure. And so it's one thing to recognize when we have failed ourselves. It's another thing to recognize when other people have failed us. That's hard, but You know what's even harder is this underlying sense that God has failed you. Again, can anyone be so honest? I'm raising my hand. These moments and these glimpses, like maybe God has failed me. We sing about, you'll never fail me. (laughs) But today I kind of feel that way. (laughs) If we're honest. Paul was the case for it. He has this radical conversion story. We read about it in, in the book of Acts where his name was Saul and he was persecuting Christians and he has this crazy encounter and he's blinded and God gives a word of knowledge to another guy to come to his house and 
speak in and affirm what God is doing into his life. And so there's, this testimony is pretty powerful of what God is doing in Paul's life. He has a name change. He gets commissioned, sent out to be a preacher. He's called to preach. That's God's promise. It's very obvious through the testimonies that he is called to preach. But the thing about this is, is he was called to preach, but then he ended up in a prison. <laughs> you think, what was all that about? The testimonies and the victories and the breakthroughs, and then there you find yourself sitting in a prison. I, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I can't read Paul's mind, but I could imagine at some point there was this big mystery of maybe God has failed us. Like I was supposed to preach, but now I'm sitting in a prison. But the thing that we can learn from Paul is that he never considered his failures as final. His failures were not final. And so we read in the book, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas sitting in a prison cell, cell potentially a, a great defeat. I don't know about you, but that would put a knock in my worship. <laughs> that, that, would, that would throw a curveball to me and my worship. But Paul and Silas sit in the prison. It says around the midnight hour, they began to pray and sing hymns to the Lord. So they began to worship in prison because they realized that that failure was not final. It actually wasn't a failure to begin with. It had just positioned them in a place to find a depth of worship that they never knew before. And so they, they start worshiping, and it says that there was a great earthquake, and, and the ground shook, the foundations of the prison shook, and the walls came down. And then the guard, he was about to kill himself because he was so scared that these men had escaped, and it leads to salvation in, in, in his home. It's a beautiful story, but he worshiped in failure right in the middle of it. So sometimes we determine our worship by our feelings, our failures, and then some of us let facts define our worship. <laughs> we let facts define our worship. And one thing I hope we take away from today is that worship is not denying facts. Worship is not stepping out of reality for a moment to step into some other realm. God, God, God is so much better than that to take you out of his presence and then, then thrust you back into your reality and the facts. It's not true to his character and his nature. See, worship is facing the facts. And Paul learned this from Abraham. I, I do have a slide for this one. This is Romans 4, 18 through 21. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be without weakening in his face faith, here it is, he faced the fact, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. See, worship, bringing glory to God, is not about ignoring the facts or escaping a situation. It's simply finding a different strength in the middle of it. So that's the pressure on the outside of this jar. Um, and, and so for a moment, I, I want to talk about the inside of the jar. Because the, the outside of the jar, it, it's fragile, it's brittle, it gets some cracks in it. And we're related to that. I think some of us can identify very closely to cracks in brittle. You want to have any dents and cracks? see because the story in Genesis didn't end with God just creating man out of the dust it says he created him from the dust and then he breathed life into him 
And so the external was dust. The, the flesh was dust. But God breathed His Spirit and He filled Adam with life. The same is true today. The inside of this clay pot, although on the external it may look fragile and brittle, on the internal, Scripture tells us that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We're ambassadors of heaven, which means we carry the kingdom of heaven inside these earthen vessels. Another Scripture says that the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the, day, the dead lives inside of us. And Scripture also says in Colossians that it's Christ in you, in that earthen vessel, in that clay pot, is the, Jesus Christ the hope of glory. So there's a lot going on in the inside, but I think, see Dad, we love you. Have a great trip. He's out of town. Clap for him as he goes. He's, uh, he's going to Atlanta. To, um, he, he's, he sits on a pontifical council with the Catholic Church. Um, uh, typically they meet at the Vatican, but every other year they meet in a other location to work on their paper to present at the Vatican. So he's going just casually going to that meeting now um, <laughs> in Atlanta. So um, we'll pray for him. Um, Bless him, Lord. And uh, so there's, there's a lot more really going on in the inside of that clay pot than what it looks to be on the, on the outside of it. And uh, this, this comedian that I referenced at the very beginning, he, uh, he, he kind of has a point in the fact that God created humanity uh, to worship. That's, it's, that's true. He's theolog- theologically correct in that matter, that God created humanity to worship. But he'd be wrong in the sense to say that God needs it. That God needs it. Because God, it, it, he's not insecure in his identity. God is not in heaven waiting for us to gather at the Clark Center to remind him of who he is. <laughs> Man, they didn't show up this week. <laughs> what are we doing again? <laughs> like, it, like he's not that insecure to not know who he is. He's God either way. Whether he gets worship, doesn't get worship, he was, is, and always will be. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's nothing that I can do or cannot do in my worship to diminish or take away from just who he is. He doesn't necessarily need it. And so what what I want to try and paint the picture of today, and in Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul's opening argument to these philosophers is that God has no needs, but suffices and satisfies for every need. So... If God doesn't have needs, what's the point then? What's the point of worship then if God doesn't necessarily need it? I think the point is not God being rewarded, but us being reminded. Worship isn't about God being rewarded, but us as His people being reminded of of what's on the inside, uh, of this glory that rests on the inside of each of us. So continuing on, uh, uh, Paul was inspired by Abraham uh, again, no slide for this one, but going, referencing back to Romans 4, it, there's things like this. It, it, it says, against all odds, uh, everything that was against Abraham, he didn't waver, he gave glory to God. Have you ever thought about that? Abraham gave glory to God. I thought, I grew up with the understanding that glory came from God. So how do I, in my humanity, how do I give glory to God? And, and what we need to understand is the, is the wording here. And uh, typically, the word that Paul would use for glory in, in, in other places in Romans and Corinthians is this word doxa, and it means splendor. 
and, uh, which is great. It's beautiful. Glory, the splendor of God. And, and he, as he was coming up to this passage where he was going to attribute some mighty things to his hero in the faith, Abraham, he, he, he thinks about glory and he thinks splendor doesn't quite, it doesn't quite say, it doesn't quite hold the, the gravity of, of what I'm trying to express about Abraham. Abraham himself was, uh, it would have been a Hebrew context, and so Paul uses the word kavod, which we've talked about before, the, and that word kavod means weight. See, it, it wouldn't hold the same punch, wouldn't pack the same punch if Abraham, against all odds, he believed, hoped against hope, and, and then he gave splendor to God. And that's pretty, but it says in Scripture that against all that, Abraham gave weight to God. If we translate that word kavod, Abraham gave weight to God. Go with me here, back to 2 Corinthians 4. We've got a slide for this. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, Abraham facing the facts, his feelings, his failures, whatever, the bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed. Our present troubles, the feelings, the failures, the facts are small. And they won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly what it is outweighs them and will last forever. Team, you can come and begin to play. Here's the deal. This kavod, the, the glory of God, it means weight. Abraham gave weight to God. And so how do I glorify God? I give weight to God. Life accumulates, doesn't it? Like there, there's things, and we use this term all the time, life's just weighing me down. Because <laughs> it is heavy. The fears and the failures and the facts can be incredibly heavy. And we don't separate from them, we actually carry them into times and places of worship and we have these, these hard set facts against us and we have all the weights of the world on our shoulders. See, but what worship does is worship takes our weight, the temporary weight, the one that won't last so long. You can go back to that scripture because I might need to reference it. it. The one that won't last so long, we take that weight and we put it on God. We take the glory, the weight, and we put it on God. And what scripture tells us is that in our putting it on God, he exchanges it for a glory that outweighs that one. See, when you take your glory, when you take your weight and you put it on God, He will far surpass the weight that you are carrying with the weight of His glory, the weight of His presence, the weight of His goodness. And He's just waiting to say, give me glory, give me glory, but not, not in like this sexy king on the start, like, give me your weight. Like, give me your failures, give me your feelings, give me the facts, just lay it on me because I want to bless you with a far outweighing glory. The one that is eternal, it's not temporary. Yours, your glory, your way, it's just fleeting, it's temporary. You're going to be okay, but give it to me and I will put a weight on you to remind you. So worship is about reminding us of the glory of God, the weightiness of God. The presence of God. And so we, we reference back to um, this, this jar. And uh, it's, uh, you know, fragile and it's brittle. And, and Paul uses that as the, the um, like, I, I can't really, like, I get so nervous. I'm kind of clumsy. Like, I'm nervous with this being this close to me right now that I'll break it, you know. Our house, my wife was a florist for a long time. And so we have... We have flowers and vases and things, and 
I don't know how I don't break them more. Because I, I, I mean, a lot of times I get toothpaste on my shirt because I can't even brush my teeth right, you know? Anybody relate? Like, man, I just put this shirt on. I was excited about this shirt. And there's something about this new whitening toothpaste that actually, like, really stains shirts. Like, this, this stuff's brittle. <laughs> it's fragile. But here's the thing. I mean, it would have been better to use, like, a cast iron bowl. <laughs> right? You have this treasure in cast iron bowls. But he, he uses this, and in, in just like you can go to that, the, the photo, that one. Um, this is from the Vatican Museum in Rome. Here's the crazy thing about pottery, about clay, is that as archaeologists um, uh, excavate and they, re- you know, they research and they try and find artifacts from days gone by, you know what artifact outlasts and outlives any artifact that they ever find? It's, it's pottery. Like, like these clay pots are from Jericho, from 2032 B.C. And they're, they're, this, is, this is now in Rome. We can go lay our eyes on clay pots that have lasted for now 4,000 years. There's n- some knives, some daggers. There's one down there in the bottom right, and uh, there's another one somewhere in the photo. Uh, I think it's resting behind that pot in the background. Those are made of metal. I think one's copper and one might be bronze. And those are a thousand years younger than the pottery. It's the oldest ones they can find. So metal, these daggers, the cast iron, actually will not outlast a clay pot. Isn't that wild? And the Vatican, they find so many of these. The Vatican has storerooms full of pottery that will never be on presentation because they just have so much from thousands and thousands of years. Yes, why would a clay pot, like, I, I don't trust this to go from this place to my house without breaking. I'm going to probably have someone else do it. You think, how, how would a clay pot stand the test of time? You can, uh, keyboard, that's the word. Um, how, how would it stand the test of time? Because here, here's the thing about um, clay pots is they are made from the earth and then they get buried in the earth and so if they're buried in the environment in which they are made they last they persevere they stand the test of time and so the principle is here is that yes we are jars of clay we are fragile we are fleeting at at, at sometimes a bit brittle but in the right environment in the right atmosphere, in the right presence, we last. And so how do, we, how do we get in the presence? How do we get in the right atmosphere? It's this exchange of glory. It's this like day in and day out of God, here's, here's my weight. I give you my weight. I give you glory. I lay all my glory on you. In exchange, He manifests His far outweighing, His far surpassing glory on his people, and he find rest in his presence. And you remember, oh, by his presence I was formed, and by his presence I'm sustained. The very breath of God, the Spirit of God that created and brought life into these earthen vessels is the same Spirit, it's the same life, it's the same breath that sustains us. And I know a way into that glory to get into the exchange zone is, is to cast glory on God. 
to throw it at him. Give glory to God. Would you guys stand with me? Right now, in this moment, we're, we're going to practice. And uh, a lot of times in worship, we can say, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't focus on circumstance. Don't focus on the report. Don't focus on those things. Just, just focus on Jesus. And I know that has to do with my story, but for a moment, we are going to face the facts. Because I don't want to be the type of church that encourages people to leave reality outside of these doors. What's the point? And so, eyes closed, hands up, however you see fit, to if you're comfortable, I want you right now, in your mind's eye, to think of the weight of your life. The feeling, maybe the failure of yesterday. Shoot, maybe some of us failed this morning. And this can be the hardest one, facing the facts. Like there's some hard proof making a case against you in your life. The, 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 the great case of a, a doctor's report and the great case of a financial report. Like there's some facts in your life and I don't want you to run from them in this moment. I want you to stand in the face of your facts right now in this moment. And, 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 and if you could, I know this is a bit counterintuitive, but I want you to feel the, the weight of that. I want you to almost get a glimpse of the anxiety that brings. I want, I want you to get a glimpse of the stress sometimes that that brings and embrace the weight of life. But now what we're going to do is we're going to give glory to God. We're going to give glory to God in saying that against all hope, against what I could see, against the facts, against the feelings, against the failure, I choose to lift this weight and put it on you, Father. Choose to give you glory, God. And so now, as an activation, if you can see in your mind's eye making that exchange, God, here's the facts. Here's my failures. Here's how I feel at the moment. Would you take it from me? I, I choose to cast my weight to give you glory. We give you glory. We give you glory. We enter into this beautiful exchange zone right now. Have you cast your weight upon Him? Here's the promise of Scripture that there's a glory that far outweighs the weight that you are feeling. In Song of Solomon, it says that there is love that's as strong as death, jealousy as demanding as the grave and if you've ever experienced death there is nothing more real there's nothing real as raw there's nothing as final as death but the scripture says just as this glory outweighs that there's a love that's stronger than that reality there's a love that that's fine that, that is that final so now as we cast our weight on the father Prepare yourself for an encounter with His weight, with His glory, with His kavod, with His freedom, with His joy, with His peace, with His wholeness. God, we ask that You would display Your glory here today, Your weight.
your weightiness. And we choose in this moment to worship in full surrender, God, trusting you, trusting you with whatever life has tried to lay on us. We trust you with it. We worship you through it. Our failure is not final. Our feelings serve a great purpose this morning to know that we've been up and down, but our God is the constant one. He's the one who doesn't waver. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this morning, God, we expect your glory to manifest your weight.